Well, here we are. It's uh, been a wonderful, what, 48 hours. And I'm so glad that all of you have been able to join us for parts of it, all of it. Um, it's just, I can't imagine, as I said last night in that little spiel, it wasn't a spiel, actually. Uh, <laughs> five years uh, is, is, is actually a long time. And uh, I, if I'd known that this is where we'd be, I wouldn't have believed it. And I certainly could never have engineered it. So what have we talked about? We've talked about, we've heard, uh, we've heard about clear, uh, clear eyes and full hearts. We've, Friday Night Lights itself has been conspicuously absent. But let's face it, we've written about that enough on the website. You, you don't need to hear any more of my or anyone's thoughts on Friday Night Lights. Just watch it. Um, we've talked a lot about honesty. And we've spoken about humility. Aaron, in that first night's talk, which I think I cannot wait to listen to again. And by the way, as always with our conferences, uh, everything's been recorded. And will be available on our website sort of for free download. And if you want to share it with someone, um, we would encourage you to do that. But Aaron talked about the anthropology uh, the anthropological statement that people are not good, they're bad. And those are simplistic, reductive terms, and he has he fenced it in so beautifully, not talking about it in terms of shame, but just in terms of reality, in terms of the first step of AA. And he talked about people not only being troubled and self-defeating and malevolent and inherited uh, a tremendous amount of baggage. He talked about uh, Christians being blind. All right, sorry, all people being blind. And that's a special area of interest for me. It's something that we, uh, I, I, I just love writing about. I think there's so much social science going on right now sort of underlines the fact that people, even when they know what they shouldn't do, they still do it. That we can see the speck clearly in our neighbor's eye, but not the log in our own. But then, and I think it's almost the most pastoral of all of his points, he talked about Christians being people as well, to whom those things apply. That we are just as troubled and just as blind as anyone else. And what a compassionate thing to say for those of us who are constantly engaged in the project of erecting facades. Uh, we've also, Dr. Horton, he talked to us about the principalities of the world, but more importantly, he talked to us, uh, to us about the monkey bite. The monkey bite being the unexpected, completely the wrench the, the spanner in the works that throws everything out of whack. And of course, much like the monkey bite, comes the lucky break of grace. And that, to me, was such a helpful image. You know, we have so many times, like, I don't believe in luck, I believe in providence. You're like, okay. <sighs> Remind me not to invite you to the party. <laughs> 
Um, but the way he talked about grace and luck, and then this morning hearing about the blues and the blue note, it, 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 I don't know about you, but it's, it's although we, we eschew talking about personal needs, let's face it, scratches where it itches. <laughs> Your talk did. And uh, maybe you went to a breakout session. Maybe you heard about sex addiction, such uplifting topics as mental illness. Um, but maybe you came and heard about George Costanza, This American Life, This American Gospel. Maybe you were there yesterday when we heard the poems of uh, John Berryman read. I'm still sort of shaking. Parenting. We discussed. So I wanted to address in this final talk a little bit about why, again, to sort of sum up what we were saying and to talk about why on earth this is important. And to do that, I have to talk about Axl Rose because that's just who I am. Um, all of you know that last week uh, Guns N' Roses was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Axl Rose, uh, in a true and beautiful form, came out of his cave long enough to issue a lengthy statement full of many dependent clauses. Um, <laughs> Uh, about why he wasn't coming, why he couldn't see any justification for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and why the, there is no forgiveness or water under the bridge in terms of the man with the top hat. I'm not talking about Mr. Peanut. <laughs> so Axel was not in attendance, and that's what made the, made the waves. But he was not the only missing lead singer of a band being inducted that last, last Sunday night. The faces were on the docket, and Rod Stewart was nowhere to be seen. Now, this may not have meant anything to you, but it meant a lot to me. The faces were one of the great bands of all time. I don't think it can be argued. They are, if you've never heard the faces, you probably haven't, because they've never, they're this a sort of group that only, um, never really had any big songs. They're just, in you have to sort of, take their entire aesthetic sensibility, their sound, their spirit into account. And this is where Rod Stewart got his start, FYI. I used to be one of those people that when people would mention Rod Stewart, I would just laugh. Say, oh, you know, do you think I'm sexy? <laughs> he's, a, he's a walking joke. Um, he's sort of what... Uh, Real Marcus uh, said was no one has betrayed their talent more in the history of popular music than Rod Stewart. It's a heavy thing to say about anyone. <laughs> but he sang for the faces. And this is just my lengthy way of getting to the fact that one of the faces' final songs that they released is on their final album, Ooh La La. It was a song called Glad and Sorry. Glad and Sorry. What does that mean to be glad and sorry? I have a feeling they had no idea. <laughs> this was a band known for its um, fondness for uh, uh, beverages. So maybe it just fit the meter. But to me, it's a remarkable statement about what this entire conference is about. What does it mean to be a Christian? 
I think what it means is to be glad and sorry at the same time, to be glad and sorry. What am I talking about? Well, Mike Tyson once said, "I, I can talk about humility, but I'm not humble. I mean, if you say I'm humble, you've just contradicted yourself. But I'm trying to be, man. I'm trying so hard. Huh. One day there will be the collected works of Mike Tyson, and I guarantee you, watch that documentary Tyson. That man is amazing, and he's brilliant. And I'm not saying that, you know, yesterday we talked about, you know, Journey being the greatest rock and roll band of all time. And my father gave us a definition, a working definition of irony. Other words, you can say something that's completely true and completely ridiculous at the same time. Uh, I actually don't think it's ironic to say Mike Tyson is one of the uh, uh, warrior philosophers of of our age. (laughs) Google him on, uh, or uh, search him on Mockingbird, you'll find some cool stuff. Um, But humility and honesty, glad and sorry, what am I saying? Well, T.S. Eliot... He said that the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. He said the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. And that humility is endless. Humility is endless. I was asked one time by someone who was reading Mockingbird. uh, They said, are you guys Christian nihilists? I included this in the frequently asked questions section because I just thought it was such a kind of a perceptive question, actually. Um, no, we're not Christian nihilists, though it kind of sounds sexy. Um, we're not being dark for the sake of being dark. We're hopefully being honest for the sake of, of, of actually hearing the word of hope, the hope for us when we're in the place that the psalmist was. You heard Michael reading just now. That's why we talk about such dark things. That's why we go on and on about this anthropological stuff. Self-knowledge has been given a really bad name in Christian circles because it's equated with narcissism a lot of times. Uh, And that's true. There is a type of self-knowledge and self-orientation that uh, does lead to indulgent, uh, like self-loathing, for example. It leads to um, just complete self-focus and all of our worst tendencies and arrogance and self-righteousness. And no one would debate that. But there's a different kind of self-knowledge, which the law brings about and life brings about and I think the gospel brings about. And that's the knowledge, knowing yourself as who you really are. Knowing yourself as a sinner. Knowing yourself as someone who is not enough. Honesty, in this sense, is the doorway to humility. And there is wisdom in humility. What are the barriers to honesty? Where do we, why do we avoid honesty? Well, I think the, the pride is the first answer. 
Aaron talked about the first night about how we have to, we, and, and this is, by the way, this does not just apply to Christians. This is a human issue. All human beings anywhere, I don't care who they are, are dealing with uh, these same dynamics of trying to live up to being someone who they're not. That is a universal diagnosis. It's not a Christian diagnosis. But um, all of us are trying to uh, be someone that is maybe better than we think we, we, we are. And what did Aaron say? It's actually escaping me right now. Um, shoot. <laughs> um, I remember talking to, you know, you talked to a, a pastor uh, recently who preaches this message of grace week after week after week. And uh, I asked him where the headaches came from in his congregation. And I thought it would be from the sort of older conservative types. And all of us think that. But in fact, um, it, it doesn't come from them. It comes from the young people who have an inflated view of themselves, who don't want to hear about the tragic dimension of life. And what Aaron said is that if you are wedded to some narrative of your life in which you are getting better and better and better, you, that will close the door on honesty in your life. It doesn't mean that you don't get better in certain ways. But if you are wedded to some, and this is the law, some narrative, it might be your Christian life, it might be your career, it might be your romantic life, some place where you have to believe that you are getting better and better and better. Honesty will be the first casualty. And that is unfortunately why Christians are not known for people, or are known for people who shrink from honesty about the human condition. It's why these young people, they would push back when, when you talk about the tragic dimension. They don't want to hear about themselves. They don't want to be honest, at least not about how they actually are. They want to hear about transformation. They want to hear about growth. But that appeals to a 30-year-old in a way that it doesn't appeal to a 70-year-old. A 70-year-old needs to hear about mercy and absolution and resurrection. So when the gospel or any scheme of identity is twisted into an improvement scheme... Honesty falls by the wayside. There's that great New Yorker cartoon uh, that I, was, I put on the website a few months ago. I was kind of saving it for a rainy day. I have, I have a little file, uh, basically, when I'm too busy. Anytime you see something from the New Yorker go up, it's usually that day. Um, <clears throat> or The Onion. Um, or Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> Those are my rainy day file. Please send me stuff for that. Uh, but there was an amazing New Yorker cartoon of a man talking to a woman and says, he says, look, I can't promise I'll change, but I can promise I'll pretend to change. <laughs> and is that what the church boils down to? A bunch of people pretending that they're changing? Because if you've been in a relationship, you know that the way the other person is changing is usually not the way they think they're changing. And that's good news. Especially for those of you who have some, who've been imbued with some self-awareness. But again, this is not, uh, and this is not, uh, it's not just sort of a, a neutral statement, as Aaron talked about. It's not just, hey, everybody's human. Nobody, you know, can, can, can engineer 
all this improvement all the time. It's not, I wish it were neutral, but it's not. It's not innocuous. It's negative. It's, it's, it, 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 is, it is our, I think Mike talked about it in terms of our being wedded to death. It is our fatal love affair with the law, is how Robert Capon talks about it. Aaron mentioned the uh, production of Death of a Salesman that is going on right now with Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I've just been, I was so struck by John Lahr's review of it in The New Yorker. And he talked about Willie Loman dealing with the exact same thing that you and I deal with. This refusal to be honest and how it kills him. Willie is, Willie, who is the, the salesman in question, who has all these f- positive thinking phrases and, and really cannot accept defeat. He says, Willie is, quote, tired to death. His exhaustion is spiritual, not just physical, the result of a soul-sapping struggle to face down humiliation in a world that keeps telling him he's a failure. Just to keep that at bay. Anything but admit that I'm a failure. Willie, therefore, has never actually known his boys, his sons. He only knows his dream of them. He has never reflected back a true picture of them. He has never let the truth be spoken. As a result, the family has lived a collective lie which endures even after it is denounced. Whoa. Amazing. His exhaustion is spiritual. The refusal to die is what brings about his death. The refusal to accept the verdict, which is staring him in the face, means that he never goes to his knees. He goes to his death completely deluded. And that's why it's such a depressing film. A movie. Uh, Not movie. (laughs) Stage. Um... Why else aren't we honest? And this is just what I'm, what I've, what of course uh, all of you know about. I sometimes feel that Facebook and social media was invented just so that we could talk about it on Mockingbird. I, like I, I'm so grateful to all Mark Zuckerberg for that reason. Um, you know, and the Atlantic published that incredible article recently about Facebook and what it, what it means about how we live our lives. And in fact, what it says is that te- technology is aiding and abetting our dishonesty about ourselves. And you all know what I'm talking about. It talks about, you know, sort of uh, everyone is less happy after they spend time on Facebook because, and they perceive their friends to be happier than their friends actually are. You know, that we are lonelier as a result of Facebook. Because Facebook is in this, that sense, and I'm not saying, it's not Facebook's issue. It's within the human heart, which is hardwired for this judgment. Um, the compulsion... 24-7 to assert your own personal happiness is the recipe for being extremely unhappy. That's what this article's about. You know, they have all these studies. You know, they're metrics and things like that. But he, the, the, the author, um, Stephen Marsh, he says, human beings have always created elaborate acts of self-presentation. But not all the time, not every morning before we even pour a cup of coffee. And this causes enormous anxiety. 
If you're managing your image all the time, and they interview some kid, some poor kid in eighth grade who says, I get confused about, about what, I, what, I've, what I've told people on Facebook and what's actually tr- the truth. <laughs> and you just feel for that kid, you want to go hug him and just say, you know, it's okay, you're in eighth grade. You're not expected to be whatever it is that you, you think you need to be. But it creates enormous anxiety, a thorough, uh, you know, uh, uh, agitation. And I think this is where art can be so helpful to us. Um, I've been getting a lot of mileage out of W.H. Auden, and he says something remarkable. He says, he's talking about poetry, but it applies to all art. He says, insofar as poetry or any of the arts can be said to have an ulterior purpose, it is by telling the truth to disenchant and disintoxicate. I'll read it again. Insofar as poetry or any of the other arts can be said to have an ulterior purpose, it is by telling the truth to disenchant and disintoxicate. Meaning when I watch Seinfeld, what I was talking about yesterday, I am confronted with that's me on the screen. I am constantly drinking the Kool-Aid of a culture and a heart and a, uh, a, 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 the forces at work that tell me I'm someone other than who I am or that I need to be. And when I see something good and true, it gets me back in touch with the reality of my pain, of my own uh, uh, conflictedness. It brings me in touch with basically who the, 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 um, a more modest view of who I am. And that was the other part of the talk title, is Gospel Modesty in an Age of Anxiety. David Brooks, the columnist who we basically um, worship. I met him recently, by the way. He's, 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 he, I touched his side. and he, Just kidding. <laughs> Super nice guy. Um, in his book, The Social Animal, he talks about epistemological modesty. Epistemological modesty is the knowledge of how little we know and can know. Epistemological modesty is an attitude toward life. This attitude is built on the awareness that we don't know ourselves. Most of what we think and believe is unavailable to conscious review. We are our own deepest mystery. And isn't that the truth? But isn't that also, I mean, that's, that's what the world tells us. I mean, that's what the law will show us. That's what life tells us. And in that sense, self knowledge is a wonderful thing. If self-knowledge can lead you to a more modest view of who you are, to know, to admit that you were not only wrong about Rod Stewart, you were completely off base about the Bee Gees. And I was. The early Bee Gees are incredible. I mean, Robin Gibb might be the second coming. Epistemological modesty it's just another word for saying an accurate view of your own deficiency. What Flannery O'Connor says is that to know oneself is above all to know what one lacks. That the first product, product of self-knowledge is humility. The first product of self-knowledge is humility. Daniel Kahneman by the way, I keep quoting these sort of people. It's the reason why we do it on Mockingbird. You know, we believe that there's reality. 
and that as people approach reality, they're going to be talking about something that we, we believe there's no difference between Christian reality and reality. So if, to the extent that someone's talking about the truth of how they, you know, of life, uh, there will be some resonance and some overlap. And Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning uh, social psychologist um, and moral psychologist, he, uh, he is uh, an amazing, he's written this amazing book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And uh, he debunks the myth about self-knowledge uh, being enough to affect any change in our lives. He writes, there's, there's a notion out there in, this, uh, in an article about him, that there's a notion out there that self-awareness is a form of salvation. That if we know about our mental mistakes, we can avoid them. But it turns out self-knowledge is surprisingly useless. Even when we know why we stumble, we still find a way to fall. And I was reading in another place that about, uh, this was happened while I was living here. Health officials in New York thought that if they posted the calorie information near the menu boards in fast food restaurants, that people might make healthier choices. And the research unfortunately showed that diners ordered slightly more calories than before the law went into effect. But how do you make sense of that if you don't have some sort of modest view of who you are and what human beings are like? How do you make sense of it? I mean, Daniel Kahneman has spent his entire life talking about that. He says teaching people about the hazards of multitasking doesn't lead to less texting in the car. Learning about the weakness of the will doesn't increase the success of diets. Knowing that most people are overconfident about the future doesn't make us more realistic. The problem isn't that we're stupid, it's that we're stubborn. <laughs> Stubbornness, if that's not a, a, a euphemism for original sin, I don't know what is. My way, not your way. Kahneman admits that his decades of groundbreaking research have failed to significantly improve his own mental performance. He says, My intuitive thinking is just as prone to overconfidence, extreme predictions, and poor planning as it was before I made a study of these issues. <laughs> Great. People need saving. We need to be made new creations. We don't need to be made better versions of who we are. The, um, I, I love uh, when uh, <clears throat> Robert Capon writes that Jesus came to raise the dead, that he did not come to reward the rewardable, improve the improvable, or correct the correctable. He came simply to be the resurrection and the life of those who will take their stand on a death he can use instead of on a life he cannot. Whoa. Modesty, honesty, it's a fitting synonym for you and for me for what the Bible calls repentance. Honesty is a truth-telling about our experience that has given up on strategies of fight, flight, appeasement, or confrontation. Honesty means facing up to the tragic dimension of your life. And it's not something I can tell you to do. It's not something you can tell me to do. It happens to you. Oscar Wilde, when he was in prison, uh, Todd Brewer put up these amazing uh, portions of Wilde's prison letters. And he was in the prison at the end of his life. And he talks about this. He is basically the anti-Willie Loman. He talks about uh, his son, Cyril, being taken away from him. 
This is what he writes. He writes, I bore up against everything with some stubbornness of will and much rebellion of nature till I had absolutely nothing left in the world but Cyril. I had lost my name, my position, my happiness, my freedom, my wealth. I was a prisoner and a pauper. But I still had one beautiful thing left, my own eldest son. Suddenly, he was taken away from me by the law. It was a blow so appalling that I did not know what to do. So I flung myself on my knees, bowed my head, and wept. I said, the body of a child is as the body of the Lord. I am not worthy of either. That moment seemed to save me. I saw then that the only thing for me was to accept everything. Since then, curious as it will no doubt sound to you, I have been happier. Now, wouldn't it be great if we could die before we get old? <laughs> or wouldn't it be great if the who could just die? I'm just kidding. <laughs> that last record was pretty painful. Um, what Oscar Wilde is describing, I cannot prescribe it to you. As Michael just said, you cannot somehow say, Jesus wasn't strolling up to the cross being like, okay, you know, uh, I can't wait for, you know, for three days from now. Uh, it's going to be great. Uh, this is just going to hurt a little bit. Um, there's got to be, there's a, a death. The body is killed. The soul is crushed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Before there is resurrection. But the good news that Oscar Wilde tells us, that Oscar Wilde lived, <laughs> is what Martin Luther talked about. When he said that God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind, and life to no one but the dead. He does not give saintliness to any but sinners, nor wisdom to any but fools. In short, he has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. He loves George Costanza. Marilyn Robinson, who I quoted on the first night, talks about God's grace. And any attempt of ours to um, fit it into a bottle, and that doesn't mean we can't talk about it, by the way. I have a lot, we obviously have a lot of fun talking about grace in all sorts of ways and trying in vain to think up good illustrations and metaphors, and none of which ever will possibly fit. Marilyn Robinson wrote, she says, I experience religious dread whatever I find myself thinking that I know the limits of God's grace, since I am utterly certain it exceeds any imagination a human being might have of it. Isn't that incredible? Just as our not knowing has no bounds, neither does the grace of God. And it's that death that is, he uses to raise us to new life. Speaking of death, uh, Levon Helm died two days ago. You all know Levon Helm. He's a drummer for the band. He sang The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, The Wait. Uh, someone described him as the only drummer that could make you cry. And I actually, usually those are just sort of pretentious ways of talking about musicians, but that one really works. If you just, just watch The Last Waltz. 
And uh, Levon um, was the subject of an Elton John song. Uh, and it was called um, Levon. <laughs> but the opening line of it is incredible. Levon wears his war wound like a crown. Goes on to talk about all sorts of nonsense. But Levon wears his war wound like a crown. Emily Dickinson said that a death blow is a life blow to some who till they died did not alive become, who had they lived had died, but when they died, vitality begun. We are modest. We are sorry. We can, might actually have a shot at loving another person who also does not have what it takes to uh, be who they'd like to be or who they should be. We might find we have compassion for those even in the midst of their deaths and in their death. And let's call it a death. So gospel modesty involves being sorry, but it also involves being glad. It involves being glad about the God who meets you, who saves you, the crucified God. We don't talk about this stuff in such dark terms in order to be dark. We talk about it because if there's hope for us in those places, then maybe there's actual hope. If Jesus really did die, then maybe he has the power to raise me. Gospel modesty involves being sorry but being glad, being grateful. And wouldn't it be wonderful to go through life being glad and sorry? And we trust that God and the Holy Spirit will do that. And he is doing it. And he will do it. And he has done it. I'll close with another final a prose poem from Czeslaw Milos, which I think is about as... The, um, if, if some young Christians sometimes have an adolescent view of human nature, uh, this was written when this man was 90 years old. And I think it, 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 it captures the um, absolute profundity of God's grace in the midst of our failure. In advanced age, my health worsening, I woke up in the middle of the night and experienced a feeling of happiness so intense and perfect that in all my life I had only felt its premonition. And there was no reason for it. It didn't obliterate consciousness. The past which I carried was there, together with my grief. And it was suddenly included, was a necessary part of the whole, as if a voice were repeating... You can stop worrying now. Everything happened just as it had to. You did what was assigned to you, and you are not required anymore to think of what happened long ago. The peace I felt was a dosing of accounts and was connected with the thought of death. The happiness on this side was like an announcement of the other. I realized that this was an undeserved gift and I could not grasp by what grace it was bestowed on me.